Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. That is me, Gabe Derrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So as always, we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about a group of bank robbers who find their multi-million dollar plan interrupted by a man with a conscience. It's Armoured versus Takers. Let the heist begin. Ben. Gabe. It's very arguable as to whether these films are classic. <laughs> Save the uh, those big hits for the uh, review. I, I just yeah, I agree. Is that your standard intro? Do we do, have we described every movie we've done as a classic so far? I just realised, like, oh my god, did we call? I mean, the Book of Eli a classic? It's a good point. I think we may have, and when I've reached that point in my prepared intro, I do hit that word classic. And think, ooh, is it? I mean, look, there's two ways of defining a classic, maybe more. There's that it's an older film, you know, it's an historical film from 20 years ago. Uh, the classics. <laughs> exactly. Or it's a classic in the sense that it's been really re- well reviewed, it's a rewatchable movie. But as a little preview for our review coming up of both Armored and Takers, I think it's fair to say that. Neither of these films fit either category. No, although here in Australia, I don't know if it's um, true to other nations, when someone gets like smacked really hard in the nuts, you might laugh and go, ha classic. <laughs> All right, so from now on, I'm going to really struggle to actually use that word classic without thinking about someone being neat in the balls. George C. Scott, man getting hit in balls by football. <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> well, as usual, Gabe... In classical fashion, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first classic encounter with them. On the 4th of December 2009, Armoured was released. Here's its synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A newbie guard, that's right, a newbie guard, for an armoured truck company is coerced by his veteran co-workers to steal a truck containing $42 million, but a wrinkle and their supposedly foolproof plan divides the group, leading to a potentially deadly resolution. So, Gabe, did you originally catch Armoured when it was released at the cinema, if it was in Australia, and what was that experience like for you? Okay. Firstly, surely that IMDb synopsis was not written by the production company, a newbie guard. Like, that can't be... I know IMDb is kind of like Wikipedia that any old chump can throw up some old bullshit, but a newbie guard. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't quite sound as sophisticated as it could. If you're trying to sell a film which is basically inspired by the legacy of great heist films like Heist, the word newbie just seems a little bit too casual. It's a bit too commonplace vernacular. Yeah, yeah, like uh, in in Heat, uh, a newbie crim, Wayne Grow, joins <laughs> – I guess he's actually not a newbie considering he's a serial killer, but a newbie guard. Fuck, Christ. Anyway. A Devo serial killer, a pervert uh, newbie. Anyway, I mean, it's. I'm sure Heat will come up again actually as we talk about these movies and Christ, watching these movies just made me wish I was watching Heat for the thousandth millionth time. But anyway, where was I in 2009 when I saw this? Ben, I have no idea. I know I watched it in 2009, but I remember it probably about as vividly as remembering watching G.I. Joe Rise of the Cobra in 2009 or 
Ninja Assassin in 2009 or Gamer in 2009? I have no idea. If you asked me where I was when I watched Crank High Voltage in 2009, I couldn't tell you, but I could tell you I was probably high on drugs. Anyway, Armoured, I don't know. I have no idea. Zero. Wow. Shots fired. Okay. I can't recall either. I'm pretty sure I saw it at the cinema. I can't describe the fabric on the seats. I can't describe the cinema. I really can't remember exactly where I saw it. But I think I saw it at the cinema. But again, this is in 2009, 2010, 2011, that era when we still had blockbuster DVD stores. But all these films starring Bruce Willis and Mickey Rourke and so on were all going to what we called then DTV, direct-to-TV, or, you know, I guess it was sort of before the real explosion of direct-to-VOD, like direct-to-Netflix. And I thought I saw this film on a poster at a blockbuster, but I can't recall. And if you look at the casting of this film and so on, it kind of falls in this murky territory of B-list premise with some A-list actors, which we'll get to in the review. So really, it's very murky. I can't remember, uh, but I feel like I may have seen it for a second or third time on DVD, and that's where it's more memorable. A third time. Possibly a third time. That's right. Ben, I, I pride myself on watching any crap twice, but to, to, for this, I, 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 I doff my cap to you. Um, that, I mean, that said, I've watched Takers twice, so who the fuck am I to talk? <laughs> okay. Well, we should then jump ahead to Takers because later on the 27th of August 2010, Takers was released. And here's its synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A group of bank robbers find their multi-million dollar plan interrupted by a hard-boiled detective. Oh, Gabe, again, terrible synopsis. Hard-boiled. I mean, he's not even hard-boiled. Yeah, like I agree with you. The previous one, the synopsis, was surely not written by the production company and the synopsis for Takers on the IMDb. It was written by Matt Dillon. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, oh, look, I didn't have much of a character, but at least if we describe him as hard-boiled, people will mistake him for, you know, having more depth than he does. What makes a character hard-boiled? What makes a detective hard-boiled opposed oh, to- Oh, dude, the greatest hard-boiled cop over the last couple of years is Big Chris in the huge hate rip-off Den of Thieves, which is awesome, by the way. And I think we've talked about it before, but his character is hard-boiled. He's the most, like, cliche alcoholic cop ever, you know? I can't recall if we've discussed uh, Den of Thieves on this podcast or off the mic, but someone said there's a great kind of film journal called Shea Serrano from the Ringer Network, and he described Den of Thieves as totally, yes, a heat ripoff, but even being 50% of heat or 75% of heat is still better than being most movies. And that guy, uh, what's his name? Big Chris? I think Big, yeah, Big Chris is the character. Gerard Butler is the actor who is essaying Big Chris. He is definitely hard-boiled, whereas Matt Dillon in this film is certainly not. But let's save that for the review. Okay. Walk me through how, where you first watched Takers. I don't know. <laughs> like so accusatory. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, exactly. Oh, 2010 action movies. Like where were you when you saw 12 rounds the first time? <laughs> Who fucking knows? Uh I feel like this is going to be a shorter and uh more comedy leaning uh, uh breakdown of these two movies than we usually do. 
right. I'm jumping ahead because Gabe's cranky and he's got lots of ammunition ready for these two reviews. Oh, I'm not cranky. Well, let's just jump into a little shallow water. You've never seen me very cranky. <laughs> and nor do I want to. No. Let's jump into our little history lesson as to how these two movies came about and to see if there's any connection in the history of the production. I don't think so, but let's have a quick look. So Armored actually is a script that I really like and I'll get to that in my review. It was actually on the blacklist, again, for those podcast listeners who aren't familiar. It's a list of what are considered the best screenplays for films not yet made and that's how it garnered some attention. Uh, an original idea um, but by James V. Simpson, but no sort of inspiration from a novel or anything like that. Jumping to Takers, that was uh, written by four writers or two teams, Peter Allen, Gabriel Cassis, John Lissenhop and Avery Duff. Again, seems to be an original idea, not based on pre-existing property, and these films both seems to have originated in a way in which they were disconnected from each other. So, again, another instance of serendipity and seemingly no connection at all. So, let's jump to our review of Armoured. Gabe, did you like it? What worked for you and what didn't float your boat? Hold on. Before we get to that, why have we chosen these two movies as similar? Is it because they both have, like, armoured truck heists? Is that it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. This was a bit of a cheeky twin movie episode. The similarity is that... They're both films where there's a heist, there are armoured trucks, there are guys who find their loyalties tested, there's a traitor in the midst, a newbie uh, who lets them all down, <laughs> which I guess would describe pretty much every heist film. He lets them down. You've let us down, newbie. Well, he betrays them and they die. So, yeah, that's a pretty serious letdown, I think. Yeah. You're the newest member of our crew, whom we barely know, but why don't we invite you into a $43 million heist we've been planning? What could possibly go wrong, newbie? Exactly. Yeah. And two different groups of writers have the same idea within the same 12-month period. So, yes, they are indeed twin movies. Now, also, I chose these two twin movies for this episode and I pitched them to you because we both love heist movies. That's true. And that's why I want to start with Armoured because I actually think Armoured is a great concept. Now, whether they execute well in that concept is a different story, but I'll say that. You go first with your review. Walk me through what you loved and disliked about Armoured. Ben, I feel you're going to um, more eloquently and better analyse this movie. So I thought I would just read to you the notes that I wrote while watching this movie. Don't worry. There is not many of them. (laughs) Okay. Go, Shakespeare. (laughs) I can't wait to hear. Yeah, yeah. Number one, Matt Dillon says he plays the godfather of Columbus's shorts character. How old is Matt Dillon? Or how old is Columbus Short? Matt Dillon was born in 1964. Columbus Short was born in 1982. I guess that makes sense, but when you're watching the movie, you just go, they kind of look like they could be the same age. This makes no sense to me. Anyway. Uh, mm, the main guy being a chump, actually, that's something we should get into much more deeply because he is a huge chump. Most of this movie is just the gang hammering a peg. <laughs> Seriously, so much of this movie is just them taking turns trying to knock the hinges off the back of the armoured car. I was watching it and my wife was trying to sleep 
And it was just like, what is this movie that is just endless dinging noises? <laughs> it is so irritating. Also, I don't have one of those TVs that can kind of somehow modulate the sound, you know, to like, I don't know, like some fancy TVs can kind of comp- put limiters on the sound so like you can watch very loud action movies and the explosions and the dialogue. Right. You know, anyway, I don't have that. So it was just 45 minutes of just constant dinging. Horrible. <laughs> Milo Vintimiglia's face when he pretends to be Tim Roth in Reservoir Dogs looks a lot like Sylvester Stallone. It's unsurprising Sylvester Stallone cast him as his son in Rocky. Oh, this is genius. And the prison break guy killing himself was lame. That's not really a joke. It was just lame. Like, also, I didn't even realise Skeet Ulrich was in this movie until, like, the end. I was like, that was Skeet Ulrich. Wow. Anyway, look, those are actually the only things I wrote down watching this movie. I do want to talk... um, in much more depth about the idea of the main character being an absolute chump and you could have made this movie from the perspective of the guards and they were just the good guys. Instead, he's just this fuckstick who ruins their plans. As they say, a victimless crime and gets everyone killed. So, I don't know. Why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't you talk me through your thoughts about this movie and then maybe we can circle back to my feelings about the protagonist of this film. Look, I think the pitch is fantastic. So I've got admiration for the concept. You and I in the past working as screenwriters and just as film lovers, we've always appreciated innovative ways to do the films on a low budget which are set in one location. I think this is a really great version of that idea. How do you do a heist set in one location? Now, obviously, if you're robbing a bank or you're robbing something or someone – That makes it easier because that location is static. So a heist film is conducive to the one location concept. One of my favourite films of all time is Dog Day Afternoon. One location, lots of humanity, lots of tension. It's a really good way of doing a genre uh, mix between drama and thriller. This film's a good idea. Like you take the armoured truck you try and then break into it at your own leisure, elsewhere it's safe, once you've disabled the GPS tracking device. And theoretically, you go, you get away home free. And the film sort of sets up this being a pretty straightforward concept. Who better to rob an armoured van than the guys behind the wheel of the armoured van? So that's a great idea. Superman. Yeah. And then what it does is, like many films, it takes what should be a simple heist but complicates it by shifting loyalties. And the way to have shifting loyalties is usually to have someone new on the team, a newbie, if you will, like Wayne Grow in Heist, sorry, Wayne Grow in Heat, or anyone who's basically new to the team who endangers everyone else by making um, uh, stupid decisions or simply wants to is greedy and wants to take the money for themselves. So for those who haven't seen Armoured, spoilers, the Armoured guys – plan to do one last job, so to speak, one first job, one big last job. And Matt Dillon invites one of the other characters who's a younger graduate guard, who's a newbie, to, you know, convinces him to sort of like uh, join them because he's suffering financial hardship because this guy, his character's name is Ty Hackett, played by Columbus Short, is having – Issues with his younger brother, who he cares for. His parents are off the scene. So, okay, that's our basic premise. The question is then is what will make everything fall apart? 
Now, you get the sense that Ty will have a moral conundrum, and he does, but the actual catalyst for that is when a homeless person spots these guys trying to hit those pegs, those hinges off the back doors, and they chase him down, and then he's shot and dies. And so suddenly this whole thing goes from being a harmless heist to a heist with a murder. And Ty Hackett basically has a moral conundrum and decides he would prefer to call this whole thing off and locks himself into the van and basically that's sort of the rest of the film as they're trying to hit pegs out of the van and get him out. Now, I like that idea. Like I like the idea that you're trying to break into the armoured van in the same way you try and plan to break into a bank and you try different innovative ways to do that, like fire, explosives, um, scare tactics, psychological warfare, try to bribe him out. All that's pretty good. And for me, the film moved pretty quickly for a one-location film to explore all those possibilities. So in a nutshell, I actually enjoyed this film. Yeah, I liked it a lot more the first time I watched it. I think just watching it again, I don't know, maybe I've grown grown older and hard-bitten, but um, I just found a lot of it silly. And it's interesting, that thing where they really try and make Columbus Short's character, Ty Hackett, you know, this army veteran, a real good guy, a problem with his kid, because they've got to really lay on thickly that he's this great moral character. Yeah, they spend a lot of time setting that up, don't they, at the start? Like, And I hate that. I, I hate all that shit. You know, like, like I think a movie like this is better when there's just a, there's a character in their midst, midst who gets too greedy or something like that, not who gets too moral. Like, it just makes me, it just makes me sad for Matt Dillon, <laughs> like for whatever his character's name is. Yeah, that's really interesting. He's playing the character of Mike Cochrane. My- Mike Cochrane, you know, who like you, you could, I said before, you could probably make this movie and made Matt Dillon, Jean Renault, Lawrence Fishburne, Amori, Nolsico, and Skeet the protagonists because, you know, like, yeah, they're robbing 43 million bucks, but it's like it's the government money. Your money is insured, you know. It's a victimless crime. Like they are the heroes of countless other um movies of this type of movie where, yeah, you're right, Lawrence Fishburne's character is kind of like gets presented as a bit of a bit of a gun-crazy weirdo and he does, spoilers, kill the homeless man. But I don't know, just, just Ty Hackett just seemed like such a fucking self-righteous stick in the mud that I was rooting for them just to burn him alive in the truck. Yeah, look, I think what you've identified there is really insightful. Like, you could have just had- Wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. You could have just had Ty, you could have had Ty Hackett as the Wayne Grow character who commits the actions of Lawrence Fishburne's character, who plays Baines, where if Ty comes on as the newbie and he's a loose cannon and he shoots the homeless guy and then becomes greedy as well- You'd have a very similar movie, except you'd have the baddie guy locking himself into the van and the goodies trying to get him out of the van. Now, was that a better film or a worse film? I don't know. I need to, I need to think through it, all of the beats. But you could have actually flipped that round and kept Lawrence Fishburne and Gene Reno and Skeet Ulrich and Matt Dillon as the protagonists. So it's an interesting choice they've made. Um 
also, if you hadn't had Ty as the moral protagonist, you could have basically cut all that stuff at the start, setting him up as being a war veteran, a humble character, a surrogate father to his trouble-burdened younger brother, and it might have actually made it a more interesting film. All that stuff at the beginning was just like I don't give a shit that his kid brother like has problems at school. Like who cares? You're not actually making a sprawling crime epic a la Heat. So drink every time we say the word Heat or every time Ben says newbie. But like all that stuff is just like just get to the fucking heist and then have them play out the the sort of conflicting loyalties and and machinations. You know, like shooting a cop Oh, yeah, that definitely raises the stakes and that's an interesting um, piece of drama. But, yeah, you just, I don't know. I think what's really interesting is that there are films out there which has people locked in rooms and there's a psychological warfare as to how to extract them. Great examples that come to mind are David Finch's Panic Room yep. where essentially they are safe inside until they're not and what is meant to be essentially like a bunker they're extracted from that with various techniques like they're smoked out, there's fire, oxygen issues, um, the girl's given a um, condition, a medical condition, which means that Jodie Foster has to leave the panic room. Like you take that film and all of those beats as to how they try and lure them out of that room and apply that to this story and you'd probably have a better version of this concept, I think. Yeah, but Jodie Foster is the victim in that. Columbus Short's character, T. Hackett, he went along with the plan to rob the money until he became, you know, Mr. Moral Superiority. Look, I'm not advocating murdering homeless people. Not at all. Just <laughs> Not today. Not today. But just cut him in for a, for a sweet millie, you know? Like, you could have figured it out. Yeah, you're right. There are way more better and more complex stories about people being, people being trapped in things. The other version could have been essentially that they had a, group of baddies who just take an armoured truck and one guard survives and you have the same sort of story. I suppose that would be perceived as not being as nuanced or as interesting because that guard probably couldn't be rationalised or reasoned with as much as Ty because Ty, they can appeal to his friendship, they know where his kid is, they can basically blackmail him to get out and threaten to kill his brother. So I guess that's the benefit of having him more closely bound to these characters but I don't know, I feel there could have been different ways to move the gears in this but still maintain that same concept where how do you basically break into an armoured van and then how do those betrayals slowly unfold over 90 minutes? Yeah, like at the end he's like six people are dead, seven people actually are dead because of his actions and he's just like says to his brother, come on, let's go home. And it's just like, dude. Because, because you're a self-righteous prick, seven people are dead. And it's not like Matt Dillon or Jean Reno are, are bad guys. You know, they're not like, um, you know, I don't know, who's a bad guy? Um, they're, not, they're not out there just doing murders for the well, fun of it. Wayne Grow in Heat, take a drink, is a bad guy. Yeah, that's right. But we've always basically cited the motivations of Ed Harris in that Michael Bay classic, The Rock, as a great example of having a good slash bad guy, a bad guy with understandable motivations. You could have actually done something similar here. So quick recap for those who haven't seen The Rock in a while. You should. 
It is awesome. Gabe and I love it. In that film, we have this five-star general who's lost his wife. So immediately we kind of like are sympathetic towards that because, you know, he's lost someone close to him. That sucks. Then we have the situation where it seems that the background to the opening kind of heist where they steal these missiles is that all these veterans have been denied benefits, undeservedly so. So basically you have all of these veterans who don't have, I think it's like health insurance and um, a pension, you know, to retire on. And so essentially it's a betrayal of these people who gave up their lives in various wars. So Ed Harris's character essentially commits what is basically a act of terrorism to get the ransom being I want all those veterans given the money that they deserve. And ben, are you, are you going to say that these guys should have robbed $43 million so fallen renter cops no, should get what they deserve? No, but what you could have done is- Because <laughs> that's pretty funny. If you, if you wanted to, a version of this could have been that essentially these good guys, and you just mentioned yourself, I'm just sort of following up on your point that- Oh, sure. John Reno, Matt Dillon, these guys are ostensibly good guys, right? Sure. Up until this point in their lives, they haven't done anything wrong. They've been actually loyal employees. If you wanted to, if we were to rewrite this film or do a sequel or reboot- you could actually consider them having been screwed over and this is part of the company. And this is them basically getting back at the company to get what was rightfully theirs. And then maybe if you wanted to, I suppose, lean into the whole Robin Hood angle, which is what is happening in Michael Bay's The Rock. And they would distribute some of that money, not all of it, but let's just say some of that money to other veteran guards or something like that, if you wanted to. Yeah. That's another version you could do, in which case- you could empathise very much. And then maybe you do have a stranger, you know, like an, a newbie guard who they don't try and bring onto the job, uh, unlike Ty, who's in on it from the start, and then the same beats apply. I mean, here we are, basically try and deconstruct this film as to how it could be a better version. But I guess the point in doing that is that we're kind of reviewing the flaws in the film. Yeah, the the flaws, it's like it felt like it was financed by people who think, ah, oh, but what about the money? The money's a victim here. Think of the money, like the poor money that's been taken. Like when someone think of the money, we have to save the money. It's like, fuck that shit, man. Just let these poor schlup security guys steal that $43 million, retire on an island. 80 minutes of the movie could just be Matt Dillon, Jean Renault and Larry Fishburne hanging out on an island, having a nice time. And I'd I'd watch that. I've got an awesome idea for a sequel to this, which is something like after The Sunset, the film with Pierce Brosnan, which is like a post-heist film. It's like a sequel to a, a spiritual sequel to The Thomas Crown Affair. So After The Sunset meets Ronan, the De Niro film set in Europe. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Oh, nice. I like it. Yeah. That's a nice little tease you've put in there. Oh, I like to tease you. So here oh, are that's you- weird. <laughs> <laughs> Here are a few comments I wrote down. <laughs> okay. Um, these are random comments I wrote down on my phone whilst watching this film. So this is basically a stream of consciousness. How good does Matt Dillon look? He's 44, 45 in this film. Good for him. He does. He looks fantastic. Like, he looks really good. Yeah. He is a bit like Paul Rudd. He's ageless. Like, he's aged in his career really well. And this film was made 2009. And when was something about Mary, about- what, 1995-ish? Uh, no, was it 98, 97? Okay, so there's 10 years after that. He looks the same. He looks the same. And does he look the same now? Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, no, not sure. Must must look at and find out. Ben? He does. He does. He does. Right, there you go. Um, other comment, 
great usage of diopter shots. Again, for the non-filmmaking podcast listeners, it's basically when you put like this special lens on a camera and it shows something in extreme foreground close to the camera in focus. But on the other side of the shot in the extreme background, that thing's in focus as well. It's a really kind of cool way to sort of show information close to the camera and information away from the camera in one shot. I hate those shots. Only one movie ever really did them good and that's All the President's Men. Is that because it draws attention to the filmmaking? Yeah, and always they have that really fuzzy centre bit where like the the two depth of fields meet with the long depth of field in the middle of the shot. Oh, God. Like, Like the famous one in Jaws, you know, where the guy's up close. His hair is out of focus. His eyes are in focus and the woman in the background is in focus. I, look, I, let's not talk about them too long. I can't stand them. I really don't like them. So Gabe's really not enjoying this film. Uh, my next uh, stream of consciousness note was, whatever happened to Skeet, Skeet Ulrich? I did find out later on he's been in four seasons of Riverdale with Luke Perry. RIP. So both guys who went from teen heartthrobs to the dads of teen heartthrobs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can tell you the exact moment Skeet's career went... Uh, was he cancelled? No, 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 no. You don't. Cancelled actors don't turn up in Riverdale. All right. Let's say that for our awards, I think. How's that? Sure. Okay. So any other final comments about Armored before we move on to our <laughs> review of Takers? Um, no. <laughs> I feel I've said all I wanted to say about this movie. All right. My final thoughts are this. Well cast. True. Well cast movie. Like if you're going to have a film set in one location – with actors that could sell the film internationally, uh, that could essentially be those recognisable faces where people go, oh, I know so-and-so from The Professional, Jean Reno, or, oh, I know that guy from uh, Wild Things, or There's Something About Mary, Matt Dillon. Like, the sort of actors that are affordable but recognisable. So I think it's a well-cast movie. I think it's well-made. I think the action scenes are well done. I feel there's tension. I don't feel it's a, quote, journeyman film. I actually really rate this director's work and I really enjoyed his take on Predators and thought that was really well directed. So I I actually think the film, excuse the pun, has a lot of bang for its buck. I enjoyed the score. I just didn't like the character of Ty who was the moral protagonist. I didn't think he added much to it and I didn't think he was the most interesting actor either. He he wasn't very complex, even though they tried to set him up as being morally complex. He wasn't. But all in all, I enjoy this film more than you by the sounds of it. So let's jump to our review of Takers. Gabe, walk me through this heist armoured car movie. What worked and what didn't work for you? Um, gosh, I was drunk when I watched this. Um, um, I wrote more notes, but I wrote them while drunk. And I, I'm looking at them now, Ben, and I have to say some of them just just don't make – it's a sh- the ravings of a madman. It's a shame they did go for Big Chris with Dylan's car. I assume what I mean is what we talked about earlier. Why didn't they go full Big Chris with Dylan's character? Jay Hernandez, days are numbered. Is Jay Hernandez? Is that his name? Is that the actor? Which one's he playing? He plays the he plays Matt Dylan's cop buddy. Jay Hernandez, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. His day his, the moment he appeared, I was like, his days are numbered. <laughs> and they were. Um, look, the only other note I think I wrote that's worth um, 
mentioning is that I loved Hayden Christensen's little hat. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like the sum total of his entire character. And there's two other characters actually who they define with their hats, which are the two Russian guys who get killed, and then Matt Dillon finds their lair, which has like circled, circled. Uh, you know when, like, they find a robber's lair and they've left their plans out with, like, circles around the places they're going to hit? Oh, that's right. Sometimes pinned on a corkboard as well. Oh, I know they do that in this. But there's those two villains wear, like, little boater hats. You know those little kind of, like, what are those hats called? They're, like, little straw hats. Yeah, yeah I know the straw. Yeah, we know the hats. Yeah, yeah. The only way they can define those two guys are with little straw hats. Just as the only way they can define Hayden Christensen's character, AJ, is with his little fedora. And that was great. Um uh yeah, look, I don't really care for this movie. It it was why 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 Ben why? Look, this film. Oh, hang on, I should say, is that the extent of your review? Oh yeah, no. One other thing, um, Idris Elba's junkie mum storyline. Why? Sorry, it's his sister. Marianne Jean Baptiste deserves better. There you go. That's the rest of my review. So, what did you not like about it? Like, what really bugged you about this movie? Just I don't know. It's it's absolutely competent. Like, I guess what I wonder is, like, there are a lot of these movies. We could be talking about, like, you know, it's like, do we want to chat about, like, like we joked about where was I when I saw 12 rounds, you know? Like, it's just, there's just nothing, you know, like, like where were you, like, do we want to talk about the movie Faster or the movie Salt or the movie Red? Uh, who cares? Night and Day. Who gives a shit? It was like a, it's just like a very competent programmer. Are you referring to me as a very confident programmer of this podcast? Ben, <laughs> Ben, Ben, you know me. Uh, subtext is for cowards. <laughs> um, and look, this is this is takers. There's like nothing in this movie. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that I guess is memorably bad, like the scene where spoilers, AJ Hayden Christensen's character dies. Not wearing his hat, mind you, which was a huge missed opportunity. Until but like, Paul Walker comes up to him and discovers him dead and then puts his little hat yeah. on his little tummy. <laughs> yeah, so sweet. But, you know, like the overly try-hard way they the, – the, the, the way they overly try hard. No, the try-hard overly way. Anyway, they're trying to make that action sequence like balletic. You know, like it's the end shootout of True Romance or something. You know, like feathers like – but it's just lame. Or the way, what's his name? Uh, the guy, the guy who, the guy who assaulted Rihanna, Chris Brown. You know, Chris Brown and his brother. I don't know their deaths. Yeah, his brother is played by Michael Ealy. Michael Ealy. You know the way they go down as if they're like, you know, they ain't Butch and Sundance. You know, this this like soft focus shot as they're gunned down by. It's like, stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. That was Michael Ealy and Chris Brown's. Boondock Saints moment. That's where they were basically going out together, you know, like, let's do this. But you're right. Like, there's a lot of style infused in this film and the issue is, is it the right style for the right film or the right scene? Yeah. And, look, a lot of it's kind of nice. Like, I like some of the lighting, you know, it's just fine, you know. I think, by the way, speaking of the look of the film, the lighting, I think the film looks terrible. It was shot on the Panasonic Genesis 10 years ago, we're in that point where digital films are still trying to find their look and there are many scenes in this film which felt very video-y to me. I love that shit. You love that shit? <laughs> yeah. Look, I like when they lean into it and it's got also the grain and the high contrast 
and the whites blow out like in Michael Mann's Miami Vice. I like it in that context, but this one, it's, it's in the no man's land for me between video and film where it looks like film sometimes and then video other times. Like From the cinematographer of Bucky Larson, Born to be a Star, and Gotti comes takers. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So not a great DP filmography. I mean, he's still shooting big movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the film looks fine. Look, they do they try a lot of different stylistic flourishes. You mentioned beforehand the uh, slow motion, uh, balletic uh, execution of the action scene. I was watching that wondering, is this trying to correct what they couldn't get in camera in the first place and they therefore had to basically mash these shots together, push into slow motion and try and give it a different feel because it just didn't cut together in the first place as a good action scene. Probably. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a you know, they did shoot in slow motion, so they must have factored some of that that in. That doesn't look like it looks like they shot it in about forty five minutes. I don't want to be mean to to I guess I've spent this whole podcast being mean to this movie, so fuck it. Yeah, it looks like they shot it in about forty five minutes. I love you pull your punches now. It's like you've just basically <laughs> break this for this movie over the coals, but oh no. No, but I don't even I don't even mean to. Like there's nothing you know, it's fine. It's like okay. it's literally okay. Well let's start with that fine thing. I think a film is fine when essentially it doesn't have a unique concept and or it's not executed in a unique way. So this is a heist film. At least Armoured to me was working with a bit of a play on the one location idea of a heist. Totally. This film doesn't actually have anything about it that makes it unique as a heist film. We have a team. In that team we have each person demonstrating a special skill. There's the explosive technician, the daredevil stunt guy, the leader slash tactician, et cetera, et cetera. Wait, wait, wait. The will man. Are they? Do they have – what's Hayden Christensen's skill? Because he like kung fu fights some guys at one point. But he's not the fighting guy. What's Michael Ealy's skill? Like he shoots some. Is he just the murderer guy? He kills like emaciated Dennis Leary looking Russian guy. But like, what's his skill? Okay. Do they have clearly like it's not like Ocean's Eleven where it's like here's a gymnast. Well, according to the Internet Movie Database, they do have their skills, and this mm. uh, these are their skills. Okay. So Michael Ealy, who's one of the brothers, is the explosives specialist. Uh, okay. Chris Brown. Yeah. Who's Michael Ealy's brother in the movie? is the daredevil escape artist. Now, mind you- He does some parkour. A lot of parkour. Oh, awful. Yeah. Paul Walker is both the marksman and the muscle. Uh-huh. The character of Ghost is the slick planner with connections. Yeah. Hayden Christensen is the civil engineering specialist and helicopter pilot. Oh, okay. So he's like a wheelman in the air. Nice. And Idris Elba is the tactician, strategist, and leader. I think there's a bit of a cheeky conflation of skills there. Like for Hayden Christensen to be both a engineering specialist and a chopper pilot, that's a lot. Whereas all the ghost is doing is he is the slick planner, which I would have thought is already covered by Idris Elba as the tactician, strategist, and leader. And also ghost is the guy with connections. Yeah. Again, that's covered. Like I, he, he's, his skill is he looks nice in a suit. Yeah, totally. And also, too, like Paul Walker as the marksman and muscle. Well, they're all firing guns, aren't they? And they're all punching each other, other people. So aren't they all marksman and muscle? Well, Paul Walker spends most of his time hiding behind a couch going, shoot. Exactly. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. 
So anyway, that's the layout. So we've got basically a team, each with a different skill set. Arguably. They do a heist. <laughs> they bring in a newbie and the newbie comes on because the uh, action is the juice. Oh, nice. Little check there to uh, heat. Take a drink, everyone. And essentially, they take on this extra person because it is an extra big last score. And so, therefore, it's worth the risk of the newbie. Again, a familiar trope of any heist movie. Things go wrong, like most heist movies. People die progressively. And at the end, either a couple of people escape or they don't. The only... I guess unique element in this film is the addition of Idris Elba's sister, who essentially is the one person who exposes them. She plays a junkie and she steals some of the stolen money and those trace banknotes then get Matt Dillon on the case. So I guess that's the one element. Other films, you probably have a girlfriend character, a wife character fleeing the scene, getting caught. Um, But there isn't really anything unique about any of those beats, is there? No. And, like, what's weird is, like, when you get to the end of the movie, Matt Dillon's character was so ineffectual, you could have removed him entirely from the movie. He literally does nothing. At the end, he just gets shot, lies there, and then radios for help. What What did he do? He did zero. Matt Dillon or Paul Walker? Matt Dillon. The cop. Yeah, yeah. Like he fills in some exposition for the audience and he chases after them a little bit. But but I just don't understand why. Yeah, at the end, the fact that he actually doesn't even stop the guys getting away means he essentially has barely any influence in the movie, except I suppose, of course, that he initiates the chase and therefore they lose some of them. Some of them die. Dude, a starter pistol pistol can initiate a chase. Like, <laughs> like what the? F- I don't, I don't need Matt Dillon's backstory just to get Chris Brown running. Like, like who cares? And all that extra stuff with Jay Hernandez as his like partner, we find out is corrupt. What in the, what in the fuck is this doing in this movie? Like, does any of that matter? Like, why does that little subplot? Yeah, we're being harsh in the film, and I agree with everything you've said. Look, some of those details, I guess, are just add a, a bit of extra information to the film. I would have found it more interesting if Matt Dillon was corrupt or had some sort of connection to these guys from the past. Totally. I don't think the fact that he discovers his partner is a cop really makes any difference. Wait, he discovered his partner was a cop? Oh, sorry, a, a dirty cop. <laughs> a dirty cop. Oh, my God, you're a cop. Yeah, a dirty cop. Um, doesn't really play into it. I mean, at the end is this bit where... The dirty cop played by Jay Hernandez encounters Chris Brown and off-screen Chris Brown kills him and Chris Brown makes a comment, oh, it's like he wanted to die, like essentially uh, his comeuppance for being exposed for being corrupt. What? Why I guess that's some sort of payoff in a sense, but not really. Why didn't they put that on screen? Why didn't they put that on screen? Yeah, I agree. Like, that feels like an actual dramatic moment and maybe it's because Chris Brown's a shitty actor. Well- Chris Brown, I thought, was actually okay in this film. Now, we should actually note that Chris Brown has been cancelled by popular culture, uh, I'd say, for very valid reasons for the assault on his girlfriend at the time, Rihanna. But I actually think he's actually pretty good in this movie. You don't like him? Nah, I think shit. But it seemed, like, for instance, that choice to play the the end point of Jay Hernandez's character's subplot out off screen it just seems like such a bizarre... Like, I, I really wonder if they shot it and decided not to 
use it. I think that was intended. This is intended, whether this actually was the effect. It was intended to be like tension as to whether who would survive. And then you had Matt Dillon discover that actually, unfortunately, it was Chris Brown and not Jay Hernandez. It's meant to be, I think, just a edit choice to try and uh, create tension. But without breaking down the scene too much because, you know, it's not that memorable, Chris Brown is the one pointing his gun at Jay Hernandez. There is no sense of, oh, they've both got their weapons up. Who is going to fire? I presume off screen all that happened was that Jay Hernandez just raised his arm and Chris Brown was forced to forced to shoot him. Well, to me that's a key detail because if Jay Hernandez doesn't raise his arm, he's essentially saying, kill me. It's like when basically a bank robber ordinarily would do death by, I think they call it by police suicide, where you expect to be shot and killed. So if Jay Hernandez doesn't want to fight for his life because he feels he's done a shitty thing and being corrupt and basically is now being punished, that's sort of a choice he's making to essentially do death by suicide or suicide by a gunfire. But if he goes, you know what, fuck it, I'm still a cop, I'm still a good cop, I'm still going to fight to the end and then does raise his arm up, then the gesture it's making to the audience is that despite being a shitty guy, he's still going to try and bring these guys down. So it's funny to not show that because at least it tells you one way or the other on the terms in which he went out. That's right. You want to see the terms at which they went out. Like, for instance, Michael Ely and uh, Chris Brown, Chris Brown, shooting at the cops so the cops shoot them. They want to kill a couple of cops on their way out. Exactly. I mean, not a great execution, but (laughs) you understand their logic. Yeah, they're assholes. Yeah. Look, um, I'll just read the remaining good points I wrote about this film just for context before perhaps we move on to the the trivia and the awards. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, I did think that Chris Brown's parkour was actually pretty good. Apparently he did most of that himself. Shot over five days in LA and I actually thought it was pretty good. It was obviously from that era of... Let's do parkour all the time. Oh, awful. And he, but he's only jumping down like four-foot jumps and he just keeps doing them, just like over small verandas. <laughs> <laughs> like, look at me, I'm parkour. It's like, that, it's like the famous scene in The Office where he's like, parkour. <laughs> That's Chris Brown. Like, parkour. <laughs> yeah, terrible. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the other note I thought was Hayden Christensen looks like he's been awake for three days and living on nothing but toast. He looks emaciated, giant black rings under his eyes, which makes him look really small with that big hat, a little hat on his head. And also, too, bad casting. He looks too similar to Paul Walker. He looks like Paul Walker if left on an island with meth for 30 days and they just on screen look too similar to each other. You often confuse one for the other. Bad casting. Maybe this was because he had just, what, finished Jumper or something like that and been put through the ringer by Doug Lyman. Yeah, possibly so. Given the backstory behind the making of that film – and the, let me say, unique directing methodology of Doug Lyman, who's known as being a pretty odd character on set in terms of being directed by it, uh, I'd say you're probably right. Mm. All right, any final thoughts before we move on? Um, hmm. Oh, sorry, I should say one huge thought. I didn't even mention this up front at the start of the podcast in relation to the similarity between these two movies. Matt Dillon. Oh, yeah. Matt Dillon in two heist films. Oh, yeah. That's that's very true. I guess that's all it takes these days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch. Uh, was he in any other movies from 2000? And- oh, he was in Old Dogs and Nothing But The Truth. Yeah, oh. that's right. But he obviously made a choice to do two heist films for some weird reason. True. 
in a very short period of time. I do love Matt Dillon, though. Like, even talking about how pointless his character in this movie is, I just like it whenever he turns up. He's like, oh, there he is, it's Matt Dillon. <laughs> yeah, I agree. He's actually uh, a possible award winner for me down the track in the awards. Now, which film do you think is aged better of these two? Armoured, for the reasons you said. It's, it, it executes its concept better. Yeah, I agree, Armoured as well. Uh, and we've discussed plot holes and missed opportunities. Is there anything better that the filmmakers could have done with the high concept of either film? Well, I feel like I just spent however many minutes, uh, 47, ragging on these movies probably quite unfairly. So, no. Yes, of course. Do we want to rehash that? <laughs> Let's wait till we get to our sequel and we'll try and uh, remedy the mistakes of the past with our sequel. So let's jump to uh, – so let's do some trivia. What do you say? Okay, what have you got? Not much. Okay. <laughs> not, mu- not much at all. Turns out that we've got two average-looking films that didn't make a splash at the box office and didn't set the world on fire. There doesn't tend to be much information on the internets in relation to how these films are made. Um, I guess one little quirk, starting with Armoured, is that it was accidentally released by Sony on the PlayStation Network for free whilst it was still playing at the cinemas, and they spotted the mistake and quickly corrected, but it was downloaded a few thousands of times um, in spite of that. So, oh, that's kind of interesting. I always wonder how that sort of stuff happens. Does an intern accidentally flick a switch somewhere? Yeah, as someone who's worked in TV, it is actually as simple as that. It's just not enough... Um, mistake minimization through accountability or enough people looking over something and it just slips through the cracks. Hmm. Uh, I, there wasn't much more than that except that the cop Eckhart was originally written as a middle-aged man. Who's, who's that? Is that Milo Ventimiglia alias um, character? No, he's the, yeah, exactly, the same one. That's right, yeah. Right. But right. that doesn't really change the film in I, any way. I read a piece of trivia on IMDb that there was initially a subplot backstory for Matt Dillon's character in which his wife was dying, hence his need for money. The IMDb says they dropped it to create a leaner running time, but I reckon they dropped it because it would have made his character too sympathetic. Which actually is the thing that you and I said would actually be not a bad thing, would be to lean in harder to those guys being the protagonist and the Ty Hackett character being the antagonist. Yeah. Or at least add a bit more nuance between who's the goodie and baddie. That's right. Goodies and baddies. Now, jumping across to Takers, again, not much other than it was originally titled Bone Deep, which to me is a terrible name. It sounds like a porno. Yeah. Uh, Also, there were a few interesting factors where, you know, apparently Stephen King, believe it or not, the author, thinks the Armoured Car High segment was the best action sequence of 2010. So, thanks, Stephen King, master of horror, complimenting a genre which... I wouldn't say he is the master of, but I guess it's a thumbs up from someone. Yeah, Stephen King. I mean, I guess he was in recovery by 2010. I was going to say maybe he was just mad high on coke and booze, but no, he'd given that up for decades. Yeah. Who knows? All right, jumping ahead. Now, I say we jump into the – let me think. Oh, we didn't – oh, of course, mate. I forgot. We didn't do Spot the Aussie. Was there any? I don't think there were. Great. Well, well Moving you said on. that was such a great, yeah. <laughs> Woo. Look, let's jump to the box office. I love the okay. box office awards. So let's just see which one came out as the box office champ. So have a guess. Um, takers. Okay. So Armoured made with a budget of $20 million US dollars. It did 
16 million in the US plus 7 million worldwide, or sorry, 7 million at the international box office for a total of $23 million in total. Takers cost $32 million, did $57.5 million in America, plus another $22.5 internationally for a worldwide total of $80 million. So neither film was that profitable based on their budgets, but I'm really surprised that Takers did $80 million. I just can't recall that film being at the cinema in Australia. I thought it went straight to DVD. It, it may well have gone straight to DVD here, that 20 million. Yeah, and so I'm surprised it, was, it made that much money overseas in other countries. And I'm also surprised it made almost $58 million in the US. Um, it's funny, I guess this is that era where we were, it was just before the superhero 10-year run of Marvel, before the Star Wars films were rebooted. Um yeah, I'm surprised. Like that film now would certainly not get a release at the cinema. And if it did, it would make $57.5 million at the US box office. It's really part of that Paul Walker canon of completely forgettable movies he made outside of the fast films like Bobby Z and Vehicle 19 and that remake of that parkour movie that I forget what's the name, Brick Mansions or something. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I would say that Paul Walker and Chris Hemsworth are characters or actors who have had very similar careers and that they really relied on a big franchise and have tried to make other films since then, outside Thor, outside Fast and Furious. Obviously, Paul Walker's passed on now. And they never really succeeded. Like, they really had to always just come back to that huge, you know, cash machine of the Fast and Thor movies. Totally. Although Running Scared, that movie's pretty good. That's a great movie. Yeah, so. Podcast listeners, you must watch Running Scared if you haven't. Really, really good movie. Uh, featuring Paul Walker. Very stylish. A lot of fun, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Which one do you think impressed the critics and charmed the fans the better of the two? I think Armoured. Armoured scored 40% on the tomato meter with critics compared to Taken, which scored 28%. Um, hmm. And have a guess on the audience score. I, surely Armoured has a reasonable audience score. Armoured with... The folks in the seats, 31%. Takers, 62%. What? Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe there's just a lot of Chris Brown fans out there, you know, hammering that uh, up button. I'm actually really surprised about that with Armoured because although it seems like me particularly has been kind of hard on the movie, I would have expected it to have been reviewed better and particularly enjoyed more by the fans. Yeah, I agree. I'm very surprised. 31% with... 205,000 people. Um, that really surprises me. Okay. Sorry, Armoured. Uh, maybe you'll pick up an award next with, and here we go, the awards begin in earnest. Best title, Gabe. Armoured. I agree. Um, it says it all. Great title. Best poster. Now, again, to our podcast listeners, every week um, on almost most apps, except, unfortunately, the Apple Podcasts app, you can actually see the artwork I provided for both movies in your app on the actual episode. So you can actually see what we're talking about. But if you don't have that in front of you, Armoured is just basically the cast standing there at a 45-degree angle looking at the camera uh, with the word Armoured. Uh, and the one for takers is almost exactly the same, except they're sitting in chairs uh, in a very cool way. One post has some firing guns. But- 
all in all, not very inspired designs at all. No, and it looks like Skeet Ulrich doesn't have legs in the armoured one. They've dropped his head in back there behind Maury Nolasco and Matt Dillon, but he's got no legs. And in fact, does Lawrence Fishburne have legs? Maybe a lot of these guys don't have legs. No. Only Columbus Short and Matt Dillon have legs. <laughs> and Jean Renault off on the side. I don't know where they've found that, like the one production still they had of him. <laughs> uh, look, they're both terrible posters. So this is, I'm considering not actually awarding either movie at this award because I just don't feel it's deserving. No. I mean, the, the, the takers won, floating heads in the sky, whatever. You know, like how times have changed. Idris Ilba's floating head is positioned behind Hayden Christensen's. It says a lot about their star power at the time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. All right, so do you want to give the award to anyone? No. All right, sorry, for the first time ever in podcast history. Is it? Yep. Okay. No film is taking home the award. Okay. Look, if I'm forced to, I'll just say Armoured because it doesn't have the floating heads and I find those very irritating. Um, but as it is, no award winner. Whatever. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time with these twin movies, starting with Armoured? No one. Oh, no way. Writer James V. Simpson, surely. He hasn't – he's got no other produced credit. No, but the award is for jumping – like this, this was their jump. This was their break. Not what's next. The next the award coming up, which is now known as the Mickey Rourke Award. No, that's about people who fall on their ass. I don't understand this. Maybe I've, ne- <laughs> ben, maybe I've never understood any of these awards. You give them all these weird names. It's very confusing for me. So basically you've been handing out these awards willy-nilly without a true understanding as to the merit required Mate, to justify the award. Dude, I'm like Warren Beatty at the Oscars giving it to La La Land. You know, I've got no idea what's going on. No, I'm Warren confused. Beatty handed it to Faye Dunaway and to sort of point to her to say, mm, that's a bit weird, it says best something else. And Faye Dunaway, like Gabe Darek, just blurts it out. Fine. Then I'm- any consideration. Then I'm I'm as confused about the awards as I'm as confused as to who was the person who confusedly handed out the wrong Oscar. I'm saying in this movie here, who jumped into the big time? Fine. Jesse James James V. Simpson. Excellent. James V. Simpson. It's so inspired. Ugh. All right. How about takers? Actually, I- actually, actually, how's this? From now on, what if we redefine the award slightly? Because no, that's that's going to confuse me even more, dude. We've done like twenty five of these. Yeah. No, the, the award speaks for itself because Billy Bob and Ben Affleck both jumped from indie films into their Hollywood break by starring in the film Armageddon. That's why it's called the Bill Fleck Big Break Award. So, based on that, this must have been Jane V. Simpson's big break. Okay. How about Takers? Was, is this then Chris Brown's big break? Was he in movies before this? But he just done his musics. Now he's movie star guy. Yeah, I think so. So it's Chris Brown versus Simpson. Well, I'm not giving any awards to Chris Brown. He's a piece of shit. All right. So we're giving it to James V. Simpson. That's a good award for him because coming up as a little preview is that he gets a bad award, which might actually cancel out this award. Just letting you know. The Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them for Armoured. Any special guest stars there? Not really. No, I couldn't recognise anyone. Like they seem to have, I mean, the film is so contained that besides the character Fred Ward who plays like the senior boss, 
there wasn't a recognisable face that even has the opportunity to appear, was there? No, it's really casting a bunch of old battle axes, you know? Yeah, exactly. I love it. How about takers? Uh, I didn't really, I didn't spot anyone, but like I said, I was pretty, I was fairly well cut when I watched this, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think it's a draw. No, it wouldn't. Okay. Interesting. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award. So who stole the show despite being in a small, poorly written role like Tommy Lee was in The Fugitive? Uh, Hayden Christensen's hat. <laughs> <laughs> so in Takens, it's Hayden Christensen's hat. And how about Ahmed? Look, I love it when Fred Ward turns up, but I guess he's not really stealing the show because I wish they'd given Fred Ward more to do. Um, Larry Fishburne, I mean, he's maybe he's just hamming it. Oh, no, he, he scores an award later on. Don't you worry about that. I guess no one. Like, I mean, Matt Dillon, he's doing a good job in a underwritten role. I don't, look, I'm going to give it to Matt Dillon because I actually think he gives a lot of kind of authority to that role. In When you think about it, there isn't much complexity to it, but he actually seems very sincere. So I think he kind of grounds the film. So yeah, I'm giving it to him. They, they have one of those. They have one of those classic shots of him staring at himself in the mirror. It's like his first shot, and you go like, "Ah, oh, here's a guy with like, you know, um, uh, intensity in ten cities, man. He's double life Gonzo. He's staring at himself in the mirror. Fuck, what are you gonna do? <laughs> I love it. I love those scenes. All right, and he does it well. All right, Matt. Uh, when the coronavirus. Uh, Pandemic sort of slows down and planes return to the air and shipping and couriers becomes the norm. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award is coming your way, wrapped in bubble wrap. So, jumping to the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films, starting with Armoured? Well, I guess this one's tough because... You mentioned Skeet earlier, for instance, but it wasn't because of this, you know, that he appeared in less movies. This was probably a high point for him. Totally. And, I mean, take is Hayden Christensen doesn't appear in a lot of movies, but it certainly it wasn't Takers that did this to him. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm giving it to armoured writer James C. Simpson because- Oh, okay. There you go. On IMDb, this is his only credit. Now, obviously, he's probably had other stories in development, but this film was like 11 years ago and he has one single lonely credit. Not even a short film, just this film, which is very odd. Yeah. I mean, again, IMDb is often very difficult to tell. He might be Mr. Uncredited Rewrite Guy making- $100,000 $100,000 a week doing punch-ups. Yeah, but at least you want to have one more credit though, right? Oh, uh, yeah, totally. But I guess who knows? Well, in the same vein, taking on James from Takers is the director of Takers. Have you seen his IMDb filmography? It's pretty lean. John Lussenhop. Yeah. He, he looks, I, I don't want to be mean, but Takers certainly tries to position itself as like a cool guy movie, but he looks like a huge dork. I can only imagine him standing on set being like, hey, T.I., when you come in, why don't you give one of those fancy fancy handshakes to Idris Elba and then them just being like, the fuck is this this dork doing? Yeah, it is funny. He actually did one film after this called Texas Chainsaw 3D 2013, then nothing for seven years. Like he only has four credits as a director, Tick, 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 a short film in 94, Lockdown in 2000, Takers 10 years later, 
in 2010, Texas Chainsaw 3D three years later, 2013, and nothing since. I'm trying to remember if Texas Chainsaw 3D is terrible or all right. I think it's the one where like halfway through they make Leatherface the good guy and it's kind of like, eh, that's interesting, I suppose. Uh, But anyway. Look, I'm going to give it to, ooh, I'm going to give it to John Lessenhop because you're right, armoured writer James V. Simpson at least might have been working uncredited, making some sweet, sweet coin each week. But there's nothing on the filmography of John Lessenhop. And with this film on his filmography, I would have thought he would have kicked on to do a bit more, like just TV episodes of nothing else. So for me, I nominate him to take home the Mickey Rourke Award. Sure. I've forgotten what the award we're talking about is per my usual antics, but give it to him. Thank you, Gabe, for your commitment and focus on this podcast. <laughs> I was trying to find out if John Lussenhop comes from, like, ancestral money. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's why, you know. All right. We'll Google it after the, uh, after the show. Let's jump to the winner-winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high, starting with Armoured? Can I go first? Uh, I'll Maybe we can just say on three because I have a feeling we'll both say the same one. Okay. And everyone loves that game. Okay. Let's play the game. I'll count it down, okay? Now, do we okay, so- say do we say one, two, three, then name or one, two, then name? One, two, three, then name. Okay. So this is for Armoured for the winner, winner, chicken dinner award. One, two, three. Nimrod, Nimrod and Tal. What did you say? I said Nimrod, but I, said I just right. said it in like a weird high-pitched way. <laughs> I said Nimrod as well. Yeah, I feel it was his uh, his high as well. So we look at his career. This was like his big break. Um, Nimrod's not American. He's actually um, from Hungary. Oh, no, I'm wrong, actually. He was born in LA. But oddly, he moved to Hungary in 91 to study at the Hungarian Film Academy. Okay, that makes sense. So he's born in America, speaks English, American by culture, has some ancestry in Hungary, goes back there, studies there, makes some films in Hungary, in Hungarian, comes back and then goes, Vacancy, Armoured, Predators, Metallica Through the Never, and then since 2013, a few episodes of TV. But like you said earlier, he made Predators, which is kind of divisive, I guess, amongst uh, Predators Predator or fans. We should do a podcast, if we can, if there's a twin movie possibility with Predators, I'd like to do it because I actually think Predators is a great movie. That's just me. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot too. Just that goofy idea of this whole mismatch. See, they're guys with defined sets of skills because it's like a prisoner and a samurai. No, a Yakuza and, and an Adrian Brody and a serial killer. Like you, you really get who they are based on really broad uh, cultural cliches. And they're also like dressed in the same way. And as you say, they, they're from different races, different countries. So they look different, That's great. different ages. Like they are very clearly defined characters by their skill set and their profession and their cultural heritage. I think it's great. And the whole idea of them working together, but not working together to hunt the predators and the predators are hunting each other because they're different types of predators. Love it. Anyway, back to this award. So, Takers, is there a winner-winner chicken dinner nominee? Mm, no. Yeah, I agree. I don't think anyone was really, is. you know, I mean, I guess you'd say it was the highlight of the career for John Lessenhop, uh, which means he could potentially take home two awards in a row. But 
I don't know. The film wasn't a like let, it's all relative, right? It wasn't a great highlight in a pretty average filmography. Yeah, I mean, if getting any movie made is a win, then one of the writers, Gabriel Cassius, got his movie made. He's an actor who played Denzel's brother in the movie Fallen. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give it to Nimrod Antel. Your award is en route. Best Dialogue Award. You know what? I just feel we should skip this award because I can't think of anything. No, no. Any movie with a titular line is the best dialogue. So what do you just set up for the audience as to the line being played the first time and then repeated but reversed the second time? Because it's so clever. I know you're being facetious, Ben, but but I love it when uh, they say the, the name of the movie in the movie and then- you feel like you are indeed watching the correct movie. Um, what does uh, Idris say? Uh, we're takers, gents. No, wait, he does it in a different accent. We're takers, gents. And we take. Hey, we're, ta- we're takers, gents. All right. Should we just like give the award to takers and move on? Yes, they are, they are takers for the we're takers, gents, takers. Done. Take take it, take it. Well done, Idris. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the Nicholas Cage chewing the scenery award. Oh, here we go. Shall we go first to a one, two, three for Ahmed? Well, we know who we're just going to say. Just say it now. Say Larry Fishburne. <laughs> Larry Fishburne playing Baines. Why do you think he deserves this award? It's weird some of the choices he makes because he sort of plays it like, a, you know, uh, someone who is like, like he overdoes it. He really overdoes like the gun fetishization, the sort of weird sex pestiness. And almost to the point it's like it's unnecessary, but he really commits to it, doesn't he? When's the sex pestiness? I mean, it's five or six guys in a room together. Well, I mean, it gets more it's <laughs> yeah, that's true. I just assumed when he like sits down next to um Ty Hackett in the bar and asks how many people he killed in Afghanistan, he was actually getting off on that. Oh right, okay. Very creative. Um I think he's I mean, he's meant to be a bit unstable or <sighs> This is the problem. When you play characters that are unstable, I feel to me actors just lean into them being extroverted versions of unstable, whereas you actually can be more of an introverted, quieter, unstable person. And he goes big in this film, and I don't think it works. It's just silly. Yeah. And and all I suppose to just set up, he will shoot the homeless guy. Yeah. Like he's always wanted to shoot someone or something. Yeah, exactly. He's basically had a career as a guard for multiple decades and now he finally has a chance to use a gun. Okay, fine. Yeah. But to me, the real winner is actually the other film, Takers, with Tip T.I. Harris playing Ghost. I hate him so much, Gabe. I really do. Really? He is chewing the scenery. He is annoying as shit. Everything he does, the delivery, the... Oh, it's just trying so hard. And when I saw that he's actually a producer on the film, it made me even angrier. Like I felt like he was in the film more than he should be and maybe being the producer, he had his finger on the uh, till there, a bit of weight on the scale and maybe actually included more of him than it should be. But the scene where the heist happens and he's dressed as a, I don't know, a traffic control cop and he's commentating on the heist happening through the headset like it's a sports match. It's meant to be funny and, like, witty, and it's just terrible. I just didn't like it at all. It was 
chewing the scenery, and then it was just spinning it out and chewing it up again, licking it off the ground. But Ben, he's been in 127 movies according to IMDb. What? He has 100, 127 actor credits. I thought he was a singer. Is he an actor? Yeah, he is. They, for some reason, and look, this has nothing to do with nothing, but I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna wedge this in here. Why are people jamming up music videos on IMDb? There's like 100 and. 121 of his 126 credits are like T.I., go get it, video short. Iggy Azalea, feet T.I., murder business. Oh, this is because- T.I., love this life video. And it's like- Okay, yeah, yeah. This is because everyone thinks that the craft of music videos is such that it is that it should be recognised like a short film. But you don't see advertisements on IMDb, do you? Well, I, I would imagine that if there was some advertisements that probably go for more than two minutes and were released on- I wouldn't be surprised if they do start shoving them up there, but uh, it's real, real annoying. Look, to T.I.'s credit, I thought he was fine in Ant-Man. Is he in Ant-Man? Oh, really? Yeah, he's part of, like, the wacky gang. No. Yeah, him, Michael Pena, and that other guy who usually plays Russian. You're kidding. Oh, he plays a Russian in that. Is that T.I.? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's in that, isn't oh. he? Yeah, he's one of those guys. No. Yeah, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. All right, so who's who's the winner, Lawrence or T.I.? Well, I want to I want to give it to... Lawrence, because your TI one just seems like you just hate the guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lawrence Fishburne gets it for Baines in Armoured. Okay. The next award I will announce, but I don't think there are any nominees and we can probably move on. It's the Taking a Paycheck Award. Oh, what? Everyone in Armoured. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think so? Yeah. As if for Jean Renault, they weren't like, hey, 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 Gene Reno, we'll give you $500,000 for six days' work. He was probably like, sweet. All right. Okay, so Jean Reno is your Armour nominee. How about Takers? No, like, it's the it's the cast of Armour. They can have it. All right. Okay, done. Armour gets it. All right, moving on. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, aka Hey, It's That Guy, named after the same actor appeared in Groundhog Day. So which character, which actor triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen, starting with Armoured? Well, I think a big obvious contender for this is Fred Ward. Oh, interesting. I didn't have him down at all. I had Amory Nolasco, who plays Palmer, the guy from Prison Break. He's a guy with, you know, just I think most people would go, oh, it's the guy from Prison Break. Yes, most people who've only watched movies from the last 10 years and have, yeah, for fuck's sake, <laughs> Fred Ward, man, the right stuff, Silkwood, Uncommon Valor, Tremors, Fucking Tremors, man. Miami Blues, that movie rules. The Player, Bob Roberts, Shortcuts, Tremors too. Like Fred Ward's filmography is fucking awesome. And it's like, well, there's the guy from Prison Break. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Fuck. All right, we'll give it to Fred Ward. <laughs> wow, it's truth. Okay. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to fire up quite that much. I just assumed you would have said Fred Ward too. I just, I just... I guess I just made an assumption about you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Never assume. No. All right. How about Takers? I had uh, two nominees. I had Steve Harris, who plays Lieutenant Carver. He featured in 167 episodes of the TV series The Practice. Mm-hmm. And I also had, this sounds weird, but Hayden Christensen, who uh, plays AJ from, of course, uh, not The Phantom Menace, The Attack of the Clones and... Revenge of the Sith, the Star Wars prequels. I actually think he's one of those people that people go, I don't quite know where I know him from, but Star Wars. So they're my two nominees. How about you? I had Nicholas Turturro. Who's he? Who 
oh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> You're killing me. Okay, take a guess. His, his surname is Taturo. Uh, I don't know. Oh, my. Yeah, Ben. <laughs> I don't know. Help me out here. Help me out. Could he be possibly be related, for instance, to John Taturo? Oh, of course. I still don't know who he is, though. <sighs> I mean, I know John Taturo, obviously. All right, I'm looking at IMDb right now as we speak. God damn it. He was in 138 episodes of NYPD Blue. Who does he play? In which, Takers or NYPD Blue? Takers. Oh, he's just in one scene. But isn't that the point of this award? Like, oh, there's a guy. Hey, there he is. Look. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got the interpretation of the award right this time. Okay, yeah, fine. He was in Jungle Fever. He was in Malcolm X. He was also in Do the Right Thing. All right, okay. I feel that really as the person who's most frustrated with the nominees if we're looking at Fred Ward from Armoured versus your mate here in Takers, Totoro, I think you've got to basically choose the winner. Okay, Fred Ward wins. Done. And said it with such inspired gusto and enthusiasm. I, I would like to say, though, I did enjoy watching the TV series The Practice uh, when it was on TV back in the day. I liked it. Wow, that'd be like a great – if there were still DVDs in hardcover form and there was space in the front for the box set for like a quote – That'd be a great quote they'd probably use, Gabe. Quote. I did. I did enjoy it. I did enjoy watching this show at the time. Unquote. <laughs> this show. But like this show is just in like square brackets because I could have said any show. <laughs> and I just went into this show. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Let's move on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. All right. Um, starting with Armoured. Look, I'm just going to go for an easy one here. It's easy, but it's true. It's Jean Reno who plays Quinn, the guy from The Professional, the guy from The Big Blue. He's, I just love him. I love him. I like. I think he's great. I feel- And also, so how about you? I feel Jean Reno is just probably really fat now. <laughs> yeah, the problem with Jean Reno, this is my theory, which I've spoken about before, is that if you are bald prematurely and you embrace that, accept that like Jason Statham or Bruce Willis, and you can maintain your body weight, you don't kind of like blow out with, you know, become too obese- you can have this amazing 30-year run in movies where you look pretty much the same from the start to the finish, which is great. Jean Reno always had pretty short cropped hair for a sitting hairline, but he has blown out with the weight, which makes him definitely less recognisable, which is a shame. Well, less, less able to chase after uh, Robert De Niro in Ronan or hold his breath underwater a la... Le Grand Bleu. <laughs> so do you have another nominee for Armoured? No, I love Jean Reno. Anytime he turns up in things, ah, so great. Okay, I've got a nominee for Takers and I think he's great and I've just kind of rediscovered him, but I actually think he's really good on screen. I can't work out why we haven't seen more of him. Who have you rediscovered? My- Was it Jonathan Shesh? Michael Ealy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Talk, talk me through your love of Michael Ealy, Ben. He just seems to have presence on screen and I like that presence. I'm surprised he actually hasn't kicked on more. He's a good-looking guy but not like, you know. Uh, well, like, but not too good-looking. that he's Not too good-looking. You're thinking. I don't like my men too good-looking. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. I mean, I'm looking at his, on his IMDb filmography and he's done like a lot of TV I'm just surprised he hasn't actually done more in movies. In fact, he's been pretty much done just TV, but I feel he could actually do really well in a Marvel movie or something. So I might, as a courtesy to him, to give him a leg up to the big break, give his agent a call. 
Okay. Um, give it to him because he was in the 2004 movie Never Die Alone, directed by Ernest Dickerson, which has some awesome 16 mil photography by Maddie Libertique. Wow. Good plug. Yeah. Okay. So, Michael Ely, you've just pipped Jean Renault for the Delroy Lindo Award. All right. Moving to the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake, Gabe, for the most ridiculous name? There aren't many in these types of movies because they're meant to be grounded and realistic, but I'd just say the only one I could find was maybe Ghost in Takers. Uh, I don't know. There's there's Jake and Jesse Attica. Attica, Attica. So Attica, those boys are named after a prison. Is it a trivia for you in the movie? And the other character played by Paul Walker, he's also named after a prison as well. Uh, his surname is Railway. And that's a prison. So I guess they're being very clever there. Didn't we talk about another movie where all the characters were named after prisons? I don't know. These podcast episodes just blend into each other. Yeah. All right. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving it to uh, Takers. Okay. The Memento Award. Name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. First of all, confession. I only saw Takers for the first time before this podcast, so I can't speak for that. In Armoured, I can't really recall anything that wasn't already there except for that scene where to try and characterise Ty's uh, restless, troublemaking younger brother, he spray paints graffiti on the wall inside their house, which just seems like a dick move and I had completely forgotten about. I thought it was quite a nice piece. All right. Well, what's your Memento Award nominee? I guess I forgot that Fred Ward was in Armoured. Oh, that's a huge forget. Yeah, well, I don't think about Armoured a lot, Ben. You don't you know, go home to bed at night time and just as you drift off to sleep, just think about those classic lines and those classic mo- moments. I think I'd have killed that homeless guy for 43 million. What? <laughs> um, and Takers, no, look, it's, it's not memorable enough to forget. Yeah, well, okay. Well, on that note, I'd say we'd just say I'll give it to Ahmed. Sure. Don't, don't overthink it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Speaking of not overthinking, the Die Hard Award, did either of these two films uh, inspire, you know, clones? If imitation is the ultimate flattery, was there a legacy of heist movies in the vein of either of these after this? I don't think so. I don't think the concepts were original enough to imitate or the films were obscure enough to reboot or remake in English or something like that. So I don't think so. No, I mean, like, I think in Triple Nine, for instance, they rob an armoured car, but that's certainly not because someone saw Takers or Armoured and weren't, you know what, they should rob an armoured car. (laughs) All right, on that note then, we should jump to that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes for a runaway train, sorry, runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. There is a runaway train in Speed. Technically, you are correct, Ben. Oh, really? Yeah, the opening sequence. Is it? Oh, no, the end sequence, sorry, is set on a train when he knocks Dennis Hopper's head off. Ah, I can't even remember Yeah, speed goes elevator, bus, train. Ah, that's right. You always think of just the bus, don't you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, but there's there's so much more to it. All right. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Armoured or Takers. Now, they're both films featuring Matt Dillon about a group of bank robbers who find their multi-million dollar plan interrupted by a man with a conscience. So, Gabe, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Well, 
I thought you had a pretty good idea for one that you mentioned earlier. You teased, you teased that earlier. So, like, why don't you just? What was your thinking there? Hit me with that. Well, let me go first. Okay, so you got this film, Armored, right? Right. Now, good idea. It's a way to do a film on low budget, one location. Rather than breaking into a bank, you're breaking into a armored truck. Okay. So. That's, to me, just straight up one of the more original concepts of these two heist movies. Agreed? Agreed. So if we were looking at the more original movie, we'd have to go for a remake or – no, not a remake, a sequel to Armoured. But Takers actually did a lot more money at the box office. Armoured made for $20 million, made only $23 million worldwide in total. Takers made for $32 million, did $80 million. So before we commit to Armoured – is that the film we should be doing, given that it was not quite the moneymaker that Takers was? Are you suggesting that we somehow bring in Paul Walker's brother to play Paul Walker and then we CG uh, the 3D scan they made of Paul Walker's face over Paul Walker? Or do we just have him, like, wave and walk off into the sunset? Kind of like... Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Takers, the biggest stars in Takers are Idris Elba and Paul Walker. Yep, you're right. Idris Elba isn't coming back with Takers too. No, okay. So, Armoured, we had this cast. We had, like, Matt Dillon, Jean Renault, who else? Uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Those guys were happy to do it. Uh, I'm not sure how much they were paid, but I reckon we're going to wheel these guys back in for a sequel. You know, five days on set, sweet million bucks each. All right, let's do – we agree? Let's do Armoured. Wait, I, I don't agree that Lawrence Fishburne survived being blown up. Oh, that's when he was killed. Don't worry, we'll get back to that. <laughs> okay, great. Actually, so – First of all, what's a pitch just based on the story that we can use? Well, who survives at the end of Armoured? Matt Dillon? No. No. Just Who survives? Just that dork, Ty Hackett. But what about, but you know who does survive? Some of the money and one of the vans. What if there's like a, an urban legend that still exists amongst other renter cops? You know, in the same way that they set up their robbery by talking about a previous robbery. What about if a new bunch of security guards. It's like, well, I heard of a robbery that got foiled by some dork, but not all of the money was found. And somewhere out there is an armoured car van with $21 million still sitting in it. So remind me, where is the armoured van left at the end of armoured? I don't know, just in a factory. Like, they'd clearly find it, but maybe, maybe, maybe they didn't. Or maybe someone came along, more homeless people perhaps, a whole, a whole gang of like, people living on the street and found the money and that's where it is now. How about this? I think you hit the idea of a sequel on the head a few minutes earlier. Okay. At the start of Armoured, they say there's an urban legend about some time, a long time ago, a group of guards tried to take the money and they failed. And these guys say, but they failed because they did this wrong. We won't make that mistake. So logically, the sequel to Armoured, Armoured 2, still Armoured, could actually be guys on the other side of the country, different cast entirely, given that most of our, you know, A-list celebrity actors are dead at the end of Armoured. So new cast, and they do the same thing. They talk about what this film, what the previous guys got wrong in the film Armoured, and they won't let that happen again. But And they do the same thing, except we have whole different ways in which it goes wrong. How's that for an angle? I mean- yeah, why not? And maybe the armoured van is underwater. All right, so it's funny you should say that because you know what I like? I like it in movies like in Takers or in I think it's the remake of The Italian Job 
when they put explosives under a road and the van just drops into like, you know, some underground tunnel. I like that. I knew I had seen that scene in Takers somewhere. Totally. It's from the Italian job. Yeah. They just rip it off fucking wholesale. Holus bolus. Ugh. God damn it. That really bothered me while I was watching it. Anyway, sorry. But okay, so yeah, underwater. Wait, so in Italian job, is it totally underwater? No, in the Italian job, there's actually two things. In the Italian job in the opening scene, they do this thing where they have a giant safe and they put explosives under the floor and the safe falls through the floor in a building set in Venice into the water and they kind of catch it in a, like an underground like net or something and then they take off with a safe, right? Or they take off with the money from the safe and they kind of use like, you know, uh, welding equipment to unlock it underwater. I like how Venice is the only place you can set like underwater, like Casino Royale, oh, we're going to have a building sinking into the water. <sighs> the only place to do it is Venice. Venice, that's right. Because <laughs> there's water there. So why don't we just take those that scene and the other scene in the Italian job where the building, oh, sorry, the car, the armoured car falls through the, uh, the road into the underground tunnel and combine them. So imagine in Armoured 2, our sequel, our guys try to get right what the other guys got wrong and they cross a bridge, boom, and then, oh, actually it doesn't work because in the, no. Mm. Ben, Ben, we, we, don't, don't. I'm overthinking this. I'm overthinking it. But you're doing it in front of the executives, man. Just relax. <laughs> we can figure out a way to get the armoured truck armor underwater. The point is it's slowly filling with water and now they're racing against time. It's got all of the, the thrills and spills of the Kursk submarine disaster. What if we take panic room? And we have good people stuck inside the van and they need to get inside the van and the good people don't want to get, you know, uh, don't want the van to be broken into. Also, hey, check it out. You could hire real big name actors to play the people swimming around outside of the van because they'd be in scuba gear and you just need them for like one day to shoot them getting into their scuba gear. And then the rest- Ah. Then the rest, you just you just loop their voices. That actually them. happens in the final sequence, spoilers, to the Pierce Brosnan film After the Sunset, where essentially you had them wearing full masks and it's actually part of the story where Woody Harrelson thinks he's swimming with Pierce Brosnan because he can't see his face, whilst Pierce Brosnan ducks off to do a heist. Spoilers, he was swimming with Salma Hayek and Woody's just so stoned he can't tell the difference. <laughs> Now, that could be a version. I, I, I don't like it as much as a film set like Ronan meets After the Sunset where it's one last or one other heist after the fact, but we've lost most of our cast who died in the story of Armand, so we do have to try and reinvent the wheel, excuse the pun. All right, so it's filling with water. Perhaps there's a female security guard inside and she wants to get out, but if she gets out, she'll get killed and she gets out uh, I guess she might drown as well. And essentially they just plan and plot to try and get her out over 90 minutes. Is that our film? It seems pretty weak. <laughs> it's, the, uh, the idea is waterlogged. Uh, well, I don't know, throw a shark in there, dude. Oh, genius. So it's basically with sharks as well. <laughs> so now it's a shark movie meets a heist movie and they have to fend off sharks and break into the- Ben, I feel- Armored van. I feel like we just turned this pitch around. Like 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 John Peters wanted a fucking spider in Superman. It's like they're they're looking they're a little, they're a little bored. Yeah, it's just an armored van underwater, but it's like sharks, baby. Sharks. Okay, so what actually happens? Is it like in Jaws where we see like Richard Dreyfus sort of like, you know, hiding behind rocks 
as sharks swim around and so on? Dude, they made like 47 metres down in the sequel 47 more metres down or whatever. It's just about people floating around with sharks. This is that. Perfect, perfect. Oh, this is our pitch. So our pitch is basically armoured meets 47 metres down. Bang. Bang. Done. In fact, just draw a line under it. It's a heist movie with sharks. It's like those two movies combined makes it a mega movie. That's right. That's right. And look, if they really amp up the budget, they could be super smart sharks. I'm not saying we need to go there. We can hold that idea back for the sequel. They could just be regular sharks. Oh, so like Deep Blue Sea, they're like super brainy sharks. I don't know. But maybe now we're putting on hats on hats. <laughs> maybe we nailed it with just it's armoured meets 47 metres. What if those sharks, hang on, what if, what if. Don't say fucking laser beams. Laser beams. And the laser beams they use. No. And so what happens is one of the key actors is there and he needs to try and tempt the shark to charge him and fire the laser beam, then swim out of the way quickly so the laser beam hits the van and opens it up to get the money out. Genius. Quoting Austin Powers is just the worst. It's just the nadir of everything. So I just hate it. Okay. So you've ruined it for me, Ben. All right. On that note. (laughs) On that note, we need a title for our film. If our film is 47 metres down, which is the shark film where people are surrounded by sharks in a cage, meets our inspired film, Armoured, what's it going to be called? Armoured, colon, underwater? Armoured sharks. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. We're going to work harder for this. I don't know. That's stupid. Um, What's a play? Under. Under, under armoured. Under armoured. I like under. I'm oh, very clever. Okay. It's like, you know, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, they were outgunned, under armoured. They're fighting sharks. Ah, <laughs> oh, Gabe. I don't know. Some shit like that. Look. If we came up with these pitches beforehand, we could work the titles better, obviously. <laughs> under, I'm going for Under Armoured. Under Armoured, okay. Because they are, in fact, Under Armoured. Do you get it? Very clever. Okay. And that's how you make a sequel to the John Reno, Matt Dillon film with Lawrence Fishburne without any of those actors called Armoured. Uh, to, to be honest, we, we do some pretty stupid pitches, but I would watch this. If they had a a movie that was just about a bunch of guys trying to heist an underwater armoured truck while being menaced by sharks, that ticks a lot of boxes for me. And if it was 84 <laughs> minutes long, fuck, I am there. Let's just throw Thomas Jane in there or something, you know? Like, sweet. <laughs> and also, the, too, the, the fact that we actually cast these actors for basically three days of filming before they dive underwater and then we use ADR to have them just sort of speaking and they're wearing those masks where they you can't see their face – Genius. Genius. Yeah. The question is, though, do we cast the same sharks from 47 metres down or do we cast fresh sharks? No, I mean, those sharks, they have established careers now. Uh, You know, people might recognise them. They might win an award on a podcast like this. I think we stick with those sharks. Okay. All right. So new humans, old sharks. Nice. And, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, who puts up with our antics and makes this episode sound so very, very good. Uh, Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Excellent. You can see some of uh, links to Gabe's work and read about what a funny guy he is. No, thanks for that. That was the worst sell <laughs> ever. Cut that, cut, cut that shit out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So, as always, thank you guys out there in the 
Twitterverse, the podcastverse, the YouTubeverse, and so on. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Ben, I really feel like this podcast episode had a moral lesson unlike any other. And what is that? And I'd just like to reiterate it for listeners. If you get a chance to rob $43 million of the US government's money, don't be a bitch and ruin it for everyone. (laughs) Final words from Gabe. Don't be a bitch. Don't be a bitch.